Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've often said that one thing I learned when I was in the White House was to respect the people who came before me, who had been in those rooms when difficult decisions were being made, and who came there, whether they were Republicans or Democrats, with a deep commitment uh, to our country and its future. Pete Weiner is one of those people. He served in three administrations, Reagan, Bush one, and Bush two. He also was a senior advisor to Mitt Romney in his campaign for president in 2012. But now uh, Pete has become one of the most ardent conservative critics of President Trump. I sat down to talk to him about how his journey led to this moment. Pete Weiner, welcome. Great to have you here. Uh, You've had an interesting journey uh, and uh, so I want to I want you to tell me a little bit about how how you came to politics, which I know you feel passionately about. How you came to uh, uh, your evangelical beliefs, and where you are right now in the era of Trump. Terrific. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm an admirer of uh, of your work. Thank and, you. Uh, so it's it's a delight to uh, to be here. Yeah, in terms of my own journey, uh, both political and, and in terms of my faith journey and where I am now, um, I was a person who, as a, as a young person in high school, um, was always interested in politics. I remember my um, we had a cabin, uh, which was about two hours outside of where I grew up, which is in Richland, Washington, east side of Washington You're born State. in Texas, right? Born in Texas, born in Dallas. What did your folks do? My dad is a research um, scientist. Um, my mom uh, was a, a housewife, raised us. And so uh, we moved uh, in the um, later 60s to Richland from, uh, from Dallas. And those were really my formative years mm-hmm. in Washington State. And then sort of in junior high and high school, you know, my favorite classes were social studies. Uh, I would get in debate. My uh, professors were liberal. I was conservative. Not because Why? I, I think it was instinctual, and I think it was my parents. My parents were were uh, Republican leaning and conservative leaning. Not, not were they from Texas <clears throat> originally? Uh, actually, they both were from Germany. They they immigrated. Both oh, both were immigrants. Right? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, my my parents met. Uh, my uh, mom's mother sponsored my father. Uh, she had met him in Germany. Uh, my uh, dad's father was a dentist. He was he was a dentist as well. My dad. Uh, my mom's uh, mother had a toothache. They met in Germany. She went back to New York where she lived, and he wanted to immigrate, and so she when was sponsored this? him. He uh, immigrated in 1953, and my mom spent most of her youth growing up in uh, in New York. So I'm, I'm first generation. Does this yeah. be, be, I, I want to I want to get back to the narrative. Sure. Um, I'm the son of an immigrant uh, as well. Uh, does does this color your 
feelings about this whole discussion that we're having right now on immigration? That's a good question. I think it does. I think it does. I, I mean, I grew up with this idea of what America was uh, to, through the eyes of immigrants, through, through, through parents. And there was a deep love for America, deep appreciation for America and the opportunities for America. And there was an attitude that Americans had uh, toward immigrants uh, that, that welcomed them. Uh, and we're in a different time now, and the Republican Party, the party that I've been a part of for most of my life, um, has a very different attitude toward, toward immigrants now as well. So I think it probably is. We are the products of so many things in our lives, um, things that maybe we don't, we don't really aren't aware of until maybe we get older, but I think that, that was part of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't help but think of this debate uh, through the eyes of my dad, who's been gone for a very long time, but... Uh, who came over here during the pogroms and, uh, you know, was the kind of classic refugee and uh, found, uh, you know, found freedom and opportunity and fought for the country and, um, and, um, uh, and, you know, I, I love, I love the country for being there for him and so many others. And, and he in turn, and so many others help build the country. Yeah, but these debates, these debates, Pete, that we've been having on immigration. You know, someone, I think Doris Kearns pointed out to me. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin pointed out to me a speech that Henry Cabot Lodge had made in the eight, 1890s. It was a virulently anti-immigration, anti-immigrant speech, and it very much divided. You know, there were certain countries that he felt were. Uh, polluting our culture, talked about immigrants as stealing our jobs and lowering wages and so on. And if you just changed a few uh, of the descriptives, it could be some of the debates that we're having today. That's exactly right. I think it was Arthur Schlesinger Jr. who talked about the cycles of history. Um, And uh, these things go in ebbs and flows. Um, And there are bright moments and dark moments in the history of a country, including in this country. And you're quite right. The views on immigration um, have have, uh, the pendulum has swung very, very widely. And views there was deep anti-Catholicism, you know, in in the United States, and and prejudice towards uh, toward Jews, toward all sorts of Mm -hmm. uh, of of immigrants. and they were ugly then, and and then the assimilation occurred, uh, and now it's it's happening again with the with immigrants from uh, from a different uh, set of countries, but often the impulse is um, is the same. I think it it derives in part um, by a fear of the other, uh, which um, I think in American politics today there's just a lot of fear uh, that is that is out there, uh, and anxiety and uncertainty, and I think that. Fear and anxiety over time transmutes into anger, and into rage, and into uh, attacks on the other. And I'm, um, it's unfortunate, but I think that's where we are right now. I don't think that that will ultimately win. And it's not as if there aren't countervailing voices and forces. But in terms of over my lifetime, um, I haven't seen anything quite like uh, like this. You know, I'm a, a person of the Christian faith, and my faith is more important than my politics. Uh, and I and I try and interpret. Uh, my politics through the faith, my own journey. I didn't actually grow up in a Christian home. Um, my parents, you know, believed in God, but I didn't. I don't have any memory really of going to to church. <clears throat> I just remember in high school beginning to have these questions about faith. My best friend and I, um, really at the same time, began these these questions. My oldest sister is five years older than I am. She'd 
got off to college, University of Washington, and she came back uh, in the, the um, summer. So this is in the, in the later 70s. Uh, and I remember just peppering her with questions um, about theology. Uh, I remember my dad's notepad from work, and I would just ask. Why Why her? Did, was she... She was a person both that I admired. She had, she had a, 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 as a, as a as an individual and also her intellect, she was mm-hmm. just a very smart. And person. had she been studying theology? Or? She had she had converted to the Christian faith while she had been uh, at school uh, at, at college, and she came back. She actually was interning at a at a church, um, and so I just began to you know pepper her with with questions. She then put me in touch with the. <clears throat> Person who I still am uh, friends with, who's uh, 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 now a pastor in, uh, in Richland. His name is Carl Kopic. But Carl, at that point, was—I don't know if he was interning at the, at the church, but he started a Bible study with my best friend and me. So that began my my journey of Christian faith. Though it was it was not an easy journey. Faith never came easily to me, uh, and it was largely a cognitive uh, process. Some people, it's a Damascus. Well, what was run. it that appealed uh, to you about it? What drew you uh, to it? Well, my memory is that I wanted to try and ascertain the truth of it. I didn't. There wasn't a kind of crisis, particularly that I was going through, and I, I you know, I think I was too young, or in mm-hmm. any event, I didn't feel an existential crisis about mm-hmm. the meaning of life. But it was a struggle. I remember when I talked to my sister, and I, I said, "Patty, uh, this is a, this is like sand in the gears for me." I think partly because what I read about uh, from 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 the Bible. And what I had heard about what faith was supposed to bring to people, it wasn't bringing to me. To me, it was it was just as I said, sand in the gears. I wasn't quite sure it was true. I didn't feel like if I came to believe that it would it would give me very much in terms of my own life and my heart and my affections and the reordering of my loves. Uh, over time, it changed, uh, and I became you know, and, and I've been a person of the Christian faith since. Um, since then, and uh, and it, it became a heart attachment, um, really more of the spirit than just the mind over time. Um, and I've been so influenced by people that I've met in the journey. So over time, it became, you know, quite important to me. But I'm somebody who is very sympathetic to um, to people who have struggles with faith and doubts, just because that was really so much my own journey. So. You, and and there, these things have been intertwined in your life, your commitment to uh, your faith and your commitment to politics. Um, tell me how that, that, that has uh, worked. And, um, and, and I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about how faith has been deployed in politics, uh, because that's obviously a huge uh, discussion now. It, yeah, it really is, and and I'm anxious to talk about it. I have um, I have some strong feelings about that, but just to take a half a step back, yeah, those two things have really kind of marched in concert, I guess, in my life, my my, my interest in faith and my interest in in politics, um, and both have been important to me, uh, my professional and my personal life. The first piece that I ever wrote, I think that I ever had published, uh, was a piece in the Tri-City Herald. It was a letter to the editor, and it was a warning. Um, it was in response to a person. This was, so this was in 1980, shortly after Reagan had been elected. And um, it was a guy whose last name was Mays. I forgot his first name. <clears throat> and he had b- basically written, I think, a, a letter himself that conjoined 
the conservative agenda and Republican agenda and the Christian faith. And I wrote and I said, nah, that's dangerous and that's not right. That these things are distinct and they have to be treated as distinct. I believe that faith inform politics, and I've, I believe people of faith should be involved in politics because I think politics is finally and fundamentally about justice. It's an imperfect profession for sure, and it's not the only means for justice, but I believe, as I think you do, and as I understood from, from, from your marvelous book, that <clears throat> politics is about advancing the human good, um, and that matters, and my faith has informed that. Um, because it's it's one means to advance justice and uh, and human flourishing. At the same time, I've just always had this wariness about conflating them, both as a danger to politics and a danger to faith. If they get too closely aligned, I just think that it's destructive all the way around. And I feel like, in my case, the Christian faith should inform certain principles, but to take those general principles and to begin to precisely apply them to public policy is a very tricky business because public policy, is, as you know so well, you know, governing is hard and it's, it's so often de- depends on prudential judgments at moments in time and, and different moments require different things. So you can take, for example, um, a, a sentiment that I think is quite strong within within the Hebrew Bible and, and the New Testament about care for the stranger and the dispossessed and the poor. But how that applies to a particular immigration policy or a particular welfare reform, that's not so obvious. And there you have to invoke good judgment, wisdom, empirical evidence, and, and so forth. But it's a tightrope. It's one I felt my entire life. I've seen up close, because most of my life has been involved in politics, what can happen to people of faith when they get too closely aligned with it. And I think the Trump era uh, has underscored that uh, more vividly and I think more problematically than, than at any other time in, in, in my lifetime. Yeah, though, you know, we've seen uh, various movements uh, that, uh, that have intertwined politics uh, and faith um, some of them, I mean, you know, uh, look, Dr. King uh, invoked faith and in, 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 uh, it was central to uh, his movement uh, and the civil rights movement. Um, you know, I, I look back at that and I honor it because I agree with you that justice is at the core of it. But we've also seen... Um, uh, We've seen, you know, other movements, and we've seen people in in cross the line from uh, from faith to politics. Uh, Pat Robertson, uh, you worked for George H. W. Bush. Pat Robertson challenged him, um, and um, there. Well, I, I this may seem like a harsh word, but it's there's almost been the wep- weaponization of faith in politics. You, if you share my points of view. You are a moral and decent person. If you don't, you're a heretic, and um, and that I think is the danger that you were speaking of. That's exactly right. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, faith has informed some of the great social movements in American history: the abolition movement, the civil rights movement, and my, uh, from my perspective, the pro-life movement and others. But it's a two-edged sword in this country, and and 
within the, obviously the history of the world. You had the, the religious wars in the European continent that gave rise to John Locke and this concern about he and other Enlightenment philosophers who, having lived through that and, and seen what, what I think is fair appraisal, which is sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, the weaponization of faith, what that can do. Um, so, you know, history is complicated enough and human beings are complicated enough that you can, you can pick and choose your historical examples to show when faith has been a source of healing um, and, and, and a source for, um, for decency and when it's been a source of maliciousness and, and, and division. In this country, and really in sort of modern American politics, things really began to shift, I would say, in, in, the, in the 80s with Jerry Falwell Sr. and the Moral Majority and Pat Robertson in the 80s, as you said, he challenged George H.W. Bush in 88. That was a movement that I, I, I think had some marginal good in some areas, um, maybe more than marginal good in other areas. But I think net-net, it, it was harmful, and I think it, it unleashed some, um, some dark forces within politics. And over that period of time, that sort of arc of, of, of modern American history from the 80s, 90s, 2000s to today, to see the way that faith has been employed um, has been, f- for me, a kind of painful experience as, as someone who was up till now I'd identified as an evangelical Christian. And I think part of it is that I, what I've seen is the subordination of faith to tr- political tribalism and partisanship, um, and uh, and that's when it becomes weaponized. That's when it becomes a cudgel. It becomes a a, a, a bat that you can you can beat people upside the head with, um, and also. A, 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 it's been interpreted and seen, and I think even delivered as censorious and judgmental. Often there is very little grace um, and redemption that is associated with faith and politics. Philip Yancey is a tremendous uh, Christian author. He sold, I think, 14 million books or so, a person I like and admire very much. And he did a book back in the 1990s called What's So Amazing About Grace?, and in the course of that book, he would ask people, strangers, what they associated with the Christian faith. And he said what he kept hearing w- was political uh, attachments to it. Um, and he never once heard the word grace. And so if you're a person like I of that faith where grace is so central to, to that faith and that's being occluded, and not only occluded, people don't see that manifest, but they see something very different. I think today they see a lot of, for a lot of Christians, not all by any means, I want to be fair to people who, who Christians who, 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 um, who live their lives honorably. But for an awful lot, particularly prominent evangelical leaders, and I'm talking about people like Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham and Eric Metaxas uh, and um, Robert Jeffress uh, and, uh, uh, and, and others, um, they speak with, with such a, a harsh spirit um, and I think we've seen that there is, in their defense of Donald Trump, a kind of hypocrisy that is so obvious to everybody else, but apparently them themselves. Um, and so I, I think that that has really had a discrediting effect on faith, and it uh, it bothers me a great deal. That's one of the reasons why I've spoken out as often as as vocally as as I have, because I feel like something that I treasure and is important to me. Um, is is being um, denigrated and harmed 
Um, and uh, and it's it's not only unnecessary; it's 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 downright, um, you know, destructive. The uh, I, I guess uh, that they would argue that there are trade-offs, right? I I think Graham said, you know, we we I think it was Graham who said he we're not electing the pastor in chief, and but. You know, Trump has courted the evangelical community, or the, at least the leadership of the evangelical community, around uh, you know re- what he would call religious freedom issues. Um, uh, certainly on the cho- on the on the uh, issue of abortion. Um, uh, I mean, it feels it, it, it's hard for me to know where the, the sort of faith agenda, though. Uh, starts and ends and and a political agenda does it's as if the whole thing has merged uh, together and there's kind of this arrangement to defend what is morally indefensible yeah that's that's an articulate way to put it Uh, let, let me uh, deal with this because it's 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 a fascinating issue and it deserves to be disaggregated. You're quite right, and there is a, a responsible, I think, Christian evangelical case to make for having voted for Donald Trump. I didn't share it and I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but let me express it and then tell you where where I think things have gone off the rails. That case would go something like this: Donald Trump, um, and it, it was an imperfect person for sure, um, a, a morally imperfect, uh, obviously. But on the issues that we care about, judges, courts, pro-life cause, a whole series of other issues, that these conservative evangelical Christians believe is better for the country, for the good of the country, their argument was you have to weigh these two things, and so a Trump presidency would do more good for more people than a Hillary Clinton presidency. And so with reluctance, recognizing his moral failures and his drawbacks, we're going to vote for him. That's a reasonable position if you're a conservative evangelical Christian. Again, I disagree with it. Here's the problem with it, and I think there are several. Number one, we're no longer in a binary choice. The election is over. Hillary Clinton is not president. Donald Trump is. What's happened is that a lot of these prominent evangelical Christians uh, have gone from making a prudential judgment to being uh, the sword and shield for Donald Trump. They are his most reliable defenders. So they aren't capable, at least if they are, they haven't shown themselves capable of saying, look, we think the Gorsuch nomination was a good thing. But on the other hand, his treatment of women and uh, his pathological lies uh, and, his, and his denigration of the poor and his attacks are something that are really troubling and problematic. And uh, hush money, $130,000 for a porn star, uh, while you're, you know, while your third wife was at home with your child, that really troubles us. They don't seem able to do that. They are like 100 uh, percent in defense of him to the point that Tony Perkins, who heads up the Family Research Council, when this issue came up about the the uh, uh, payments, uh, hush money for for, for this uh, porn star, said, "Well, we're going to give him a mulligan." Uh, and so that kind of corruption, that intellectual and I think a kind of moral intellectual corruption, is, is very problematic. Second thing is uh, that I would say is that this is just complete hypocrisy. I'm old enough to remember the 1990s and Bill Clinton. 
And the, a lot of these guys were the same ones who were talking about the importance of moral character in a leader. That was primus inter pares. That was the most important thing of all. Um, that mattered to them then. It doesn't matter to them now, and which leads one to think that this is about political tribalism. If it's a Democrat who's, uh, who's, who's acted in, in, in morally questionable or problematic ways, then you go after him both barrels blazing. But if it's a Republican, you, you, you go sotto voce or you, 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 you defend him. And the third thing I'll say is that uh, – and this uh, – This I think is this, evident, by the way, also in the Roy Moore – uh, campaign exactly, and and Roy Moore's uh, after the Post story came out, uh, where these were credible allegations of child molestation, uh, evangelical support for Roy Moore went up in Alabama, according to the uh, to the to the polls, which shows you just how sick this whole thing um, is. The you wrote thing, a column after that saying why I can no longer call myself an evangelical Republican. Yeah, yeah. It's you know my I'm not less of a Christian or less of a conservative during the Trump era, but I but I'm very uncomfortable calling myself now a Republican, even though my roots are with the Republican Party. I have a lot of friends who are Republicans, and I think below the level of Donald Trump, there are, there are certainly people like Ben Sass and and uh, uh, Senator Lee and others who who I like and admire. But Donald Trump is, is, is the face of the Republican Party. And in terms of evangelical Christianity, I certainly haven't given up on my Christian faith. But that term has become so um, politicized and, and I think so denigrated um, because of that politicization um, that, um, that it, it bothers me. And again, I, I want to underscore it. You know, evangelical Christianity, it's a huge movement. It's about a quarter of the country, uh, and uh, there are people who, in their in their daily lives, um, are doing great good and great charitable work. And there are evangelicals who are uncomfortable with Trump. Some of them didn't vote for him. Some of them voted with him with reluctance. Having said that, um, time after time after time, um, by most of the metrics that we can measure these things, they just rallied to his side and his cause, and and they, and they did with Roy Moore and. Something is um, is deeply amiss. So you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter that I don't call myself an evangelical Christian anymore. But it, it, you know, you do what you feel like you have to at any given moment in time. And uh, the, the the Trump era was was bad enough. And then to see what happened with Roy Moore, I was like, at some point, you just say enough. It's not just the the evangelical moniker, but the Republican Party itself has uh, has changed. Uh, and it strikes me, Pete, you worked for three presidents. You worked for both Bushes. You worked in the Reagan administration. You served at a very high level uh, with George W. Bush. Uh, you were a, a, a policy, uh, senior policy person in that White House. I know take took great pride um, in PEPFAR and some of the uh, work that President Bush did in Africa um, on the AIDS issue. Um, but 90% of Republicans give up their approval to this president now. Um, how do you account for that? And where, 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 are, where are the outraged voices within the Republican Party about things that are are not consistent with uh, traditional republicanism and n- not consistent with kind of the moral standards that you've 
spoken about? Yeah, let me take those in reverse order. Where are those voices? Uh, well, they're not in Congress. Uh, that's for the most part. Why? I think they're not because I think there's a um, there's a lack of courage. Uh, go back to uh, John Kennedy and uh, profiles and courage. Yeah, um, I always say it's, it was a slim volume for it a was reason. A, it was a slim volume for, for a reason. Um, look, Donald Trump tapped into uh, into the base uh, of the Republican Party. As you said, he's now supported by 90% or so of Republicans. And there are just not enough Republicans uh, in Congress, in the House and the Senate, who are willing to go crosswise uh, of um, of him because uh, it would create an uprising. It might endanger their uh, election chances. Uh, some people, I think, make more prudential judgments, but I think in the end, wrong judgments. I think their argument, to be fair to them, would be, look, uh, you know, Trump was 18 out of 17 candidates. I wish he wasn't president, but we got to work with him. And if I fired off the rounds at Trump that, that you do rhetorically, I would have no influence with the Trump administration. And we've got to have somebody to try and keep the ship from... Well, and also, you know, I mean, there is the argument that he delivered tax cuts and deregulation right. and the judges, as you mentioned earlier, and uh, some of the traditional priorities of conservatives in Congress. So it's kind of a Faustian bargain. You get that, right. and you have to take the rest. Yeah, and it's the rest that I think is 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 so, uh, so deeply um, uh, troubling, um, because politics is more than uh, where you just check the policy boxes. And I say that as somebody who's as you said, spent a lot of my life in, in public policy. I don't mean for a moment uh, to diminish that importance. But that's not all of what politics is about, and it's not all of what the life of a country is about as it relates to politics. There are such things as um, as norms and standards and standards of decency um, and uh, and respect for institutions. Um, and when you have, just to take one one issue, and then I'll, I'll uh, yeah. go, go to your issue about how, how the Republican Party got into this, uh, into this bind, um, let's take the issue of, of truth and lies. Uh, I, let's grant that uh, a lot of politicians shade the truth, some lie, um, and... Uh, and sometimes there are close calls, you know, about uh, uh, where on the spectrum people, uh, how forthcoming they are. So let's let's just grant that there has never been a president uh, who has uh, been as pathological a liar as Donald Trump, who is engaged not just on an assault on truth, but the almost daily annihilation of truth. Um, that has deep consequences uh, for politics and for a country. Um, we are, I think, in some respects, in a, in a kind of post-truth moment in politics, which is a real threat to, 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 uh, to democracy. And the kind of assaults that Donald Trump is engaging in, in terms of our um, and most important institutions, whether it's, it's, it's the FBI or it's the courts or it's our intelligence agencies, these things matter. They used to matter a whole lot, by the way, to conservatives themselves. All right. Um, you know, back in the in the eighties and nineties and even two thousands, it was conservatism that was actually making this argument of go against deconstructionism and postmodernism on the academy. Said that objective truth matters, and now you've got it flipped around, and Donald Trump is leading this assault in the political sphere, and now in the really, which is which is I think uh, seeping out into 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 the civic sphere, and and conservatives and Republicans are not only uh, not stopping it, they're 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 helping it as for what happened to the Republican Party and how it nominated Trump and how it's turned out to be what it now is. 
That's a great question. It's a complicated one. I think several things went on. Um, one is uh, we've seen a tremendous devaluation of ideas, I think, within the conservative movement in the Republican Party. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in 1981 wrote a piece in the New York Times <clears throat> where he said the GOP of a sudden had become the party of ideas. And when I was really a sort of a child of the Reagan era in the 1980s, what were the important books of that era? Charles Murray, Losing Ground, Richard John Newhouse, The Naked Public Square, uh, James Q. Wilson and Richard Herrnstein, Crime and, and Human Nature, Alan Bloom and The Closing of the American Mind. Ideas were taken seriously. Antonin Scalia, Judicial Restraint. Whatever you think of Scalia's philosophy, he was he – was, brilliant and he was articulate in expressing it. That has now gone, and I think the politics of theatrics has has taken over the politics of governance. I think that Republicans and conservatives, for a lot of them, there's a denigration of government and indifference to it. Um, they don't. They don't much like it, and they're not much um, much interested in it. So a lot of people <clears throat> say, uh, "Well, this has been going on for forty years. That government was depicted um, by President Reagan as a malign force." Now, I remember Reagan making deals with Democrats, and I think it was a, a, a slightly different picture than it is depicted as now. But clearly, he had an, his. His was a. Uh, an assault on government uh, isn't the solution to our problems. It is the problem. That was Reagan. So yeah. Been- yes. I, 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 it's a fair point, but I'd, I'd, I'd caveat it. R- Reagan was, I don't think, really reckless. Even if you go back to his inaugural, he, what he said was, at this moment, government is the problem, not the solution. And I think he had a fair point at, at that point, at, at, at that time in history. The government had become too large. And Reagan, in the way he treated government, and actually the way he executed government, um, had a certain respect for it. Trust in government went up during the Reagan years, not 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 down, because it, it was viewed as 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 things were going well. Of course, he won re-election with 49 states. So there is a critique of conservatism, and I would grant you that conservatives too often have have been too too reckless and loose in their in their criticisms of 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 government. But I think, as in terms of their performance as government, I think that they did they did uh, they did well. I would actually um, turn to another figure. I think Newt Gingrich was 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 much more uh, damaging in that assault on government because I think his attacks on government were were less modulated and less careful than Reagan's. I think Gingrich introduced a kind of nihilism, or at least a quasi-nihilism, and, and a personalization of politics um, that uh, that was very popular yeah. uh, in in the in the. Uh, well, when when you talk about the sort of dissolution of the legislative process, I mean, you really have to trace it back to the purging of of his purging of Bob Michael and the and the Republican leadership and. Uh, I mean, he uh, has a, a real instinct for exploiting these divisions and personalizing these fights, dehumanizing opponents. That's right. If you go back, I think it was in the 1990s, maybe even earlier than that, where he he would put forth a sort of certain vocabulary of that the, the Republicans were supposed to use. So. You, if I'm recalling it right, it would invoke the word you know corruption a lot. So you're you're, but it was this whole view that it was an an attitude that the people you, that you disagree with aren't simply wrong. Uh, they they're they're wicked or they're out to destroy America. And it's not confined to to the right. The left has had its 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 version of it too. 
Um, I think it's attacks on on Robert Bork. Uh, some of them really crossed the line, and 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 I think hyper politicized the court nominations in a way that prior to that, well, there were exceptions that that wasn't there. The left has its own problems. I, I think part of the reason that I'm troubled so much about what's happening <clears throat> with conservatism and Republican Party. It's partly because I've been a conservative and a Republican my whole life. And I do think that here and now, the moment that we're at, it's really the Republican Party and, and the right, I won't even call it conservatives, that are, um, that are probably doing the most damage uh, to, to our political and, and, um, and civic culture. I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that Newt Gingrich now is one of the leading proponents and defenders of, uh, of, uh, of Donald, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, You uh, talked earlier about the rapid evolution and uh, societal changes. You mentioned uh, uh, gay rights as as one of them. Um, Isn't tolerance um, a virtue? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't we uh, be... uh, tolerant of each other and our differences um uh and um but uh, that so i ask you that on the one hand on the other um uh it seems to me it feels to me right now like um like trump is taking care of his donors with his tax cuts and some of his economic policies uh, with the sort of traditional uh, kind of arrangements in Washington. And he is inflaming his uh, support, his base, primarily around these cultural issues, immigration. He actually um, uh, hasn't addressed the uh, gay marriage feels like it's a an issue that has been uh, asked and answered. But... Uh, on abortion and and some other issues, he he seemed well the kneeling uh, issue and so on. I mean, he seems to be feeding the base a steady diet of red meat around sort of cultural issues, while taking care of the traditional special interests on uh, on economics. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's right. Um, let me take those in in order in terms of tolerance being a virtue. A- absolutely, and it was in the Enlightenment, and and it, for so much of uh, it, it's central to to uh, the w- w- political philosophy that informs democracy and and a republic, which is tolerance for different views. That's that is how it works, right? Which is you have differences and you're able to tolerate those differences. Now, how that applies on the issue of say, say gay marriage and so forth. Sure, the advocates of, of same-sex marriage would say that this is a manifestation of a humane tolerance, and therefore you ought to be in favor of it. The critics of it would say that this is a time-honored institution marriage, and and uh, and that to change the definition would 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 harm the, the institution of marriage. So they don't see it through the prism of tolerance. That's different than how you would. Yeah, tr- well, I mean, I think just in fairness to the supporters, they wouldn't just say that. They would say that everybody is entitled to the right. Uh, to marry, whether they're uh, they're gay or straight, right? No, they 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 would make that, and their and their argument has certainly won won uh, won the day. And I, by the way, it is interesting if you go back over the over the history of the same sex marriage debate to show you in, in a way the power of ideas and how moments can change. There were really two two people who made those arguments early on. That was Andrew Sullivan, who mentioned earlier. 
uh, and then Jonathan Rausch. And they made, um, what was interesting to me is that they made their case uh, in um, very careful and, and uh, uh, non-inflammatory ways. They, they, very, they went out of their way not uh, to uh, accuse their uh, critics and those who had views different than them of being bigots. And they tried to answer their arguments one at a time, um, and they both did a, did a very very good job. And at that, and, and public opinion sh- shifted not just because of them, but I think in part because uh, because of them. My point simply on the on the tolerance is a I, I do think it's 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 a virtue, and we probably all need it more. But again, how you apply it on different matters. Some people will view particular public policy issues through the prism of tolerance. Others will say this isn't really a matter of tolerance. It's it, it's it's, uh, it has to do with, with, uh, with the, in this case, say, the strength of institutions. In any event, as it relates to, to Donald Trump, I think you're exactly right. Um, and I, I want to illustrate what I think is the pernicious nature of his, of his presidency. Uh, when he mentioned the uh, NFL players and not kneeling for the national anthem, what had happened a few days before that was that he had uh, made noises that were sympathetic uh, on DACA for uh, children who had come to the United States. Their parents were undocumented workers, and this was a debate that's going on now on whether those people should be <clears throat> deported or not. Most people overwhelmingly say they shouldn't. Trump himself <clears throat> had been somewhat sympathetic to it, and he was getting some criticism from, from uh, talk radio world and others who um, who are uh, very very uh, I think harsh and rigid and um, uh, on on the issue of immigration and illegal immigration. So what did he do? He went down to Alabama on a Friday. It was a speech for Luther Strange during the uh, primary uh, in the Alabama Senate against race Roy Moore. against Roy Moore. And what did he do? He brought up the issue of NFL players not uh, standing up, kneeling for the national anthem. The previous weekend, I think six or seven players in the NFL had not stood for the national anthem. It was not an issue at that right. time. He went out he, of his way. It, yeah. Exactly. And you've used that word a couple of times, and I think it's exactly the right one. I found myself using it a lot now, too, which is inflame, the inflammation of the body politic. And what Trump does is he finds these cultural flashpoints. Um, and he knows his base, large parts of his base, well enough to know that if he gets into these cultural fights, not these policy fights per se, but cultural fights, fights about symbolic issues, but which have deep meaning to the country, uh, that his supporters will forgive him um, transgressions of conservative orthodoxy or Republican orthodoxy as long as he's getting into these fights. Um, and I think that there are fights that are dividing the nation um, and and really zeroing in on on um, some of the fault lines in American history and American society. And he seems to take great delight in in um, in rending the country and pulling it apart. No other president I can think of has done this. Other presidents have certainly been imperfect in terms of trying to unify uh, the country. Uh, and it's not an easy task to do. Both the president I work for and you tr- tried to unify the country, and it became more polarized. Most presidents <clears throat> see that as their the, responsibility. Yeah, yeah, and it's a mixed bag. I mean, they know that they're the head of the party, and it, during elections they have to mobilize their supporters, and nobody is perfect. And and uh, so that's that's all true. But there's never been a president uh, that I can think of, certainly in my lifetime, but I don't think really in American history, like Donald Trump, who has— gone out of his way 
um, to intentionally divide us and divide us on grounds of race and ethnicity. And he does it, I think, both as a political strategy and as, I think, something that seems to be true to him and his personality. He seems to draw a kind of psychic energy and satisfaction at creating chaos uh, and... um, uh, and turmoil um, and divisions. Well, it kind of sprung from the brow of the New York tabloids, too. He grew yep. up in that environment in which he, if you stir the pot, you get at, at the reward of attention. Right. But the problem here is that um, not simply that Trump is doing it, but that a large number of Republicans in his base is reacting to it. That is, Donald Trump knows his base, oh, yes. and he knows what they'll, re- they'll react to, and, and that's for me, been a difficult revelation um, because what I've seen uh, during the Trump era, uh, what it's revealed about the Republican Party and, and, and the American right um, is a side that I guess I knew existed, but I didn't have any idea was as widespread as it apparently apparently is. It's not an accident that Donald Trump uh, won the Republican um, nomination. Now, he won the presidency, too, and, and that's its own uh, series of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of issues that went into, went into that. But, uh, but he is popular among uh, the people on the right. And this is not a party anymore, the Republican Party, that cares primarily about economics. It's now a party that cares primarily about ethnicity and cultural identity. And um, and that's where things, I think, are really getting ugly. And uh, just just uh, to uh, close out the discussion, how does this story end? I don't know how the story um, ends, and I don't think any of us do because um, history is, is, is unfolding. I think it's important at this time where there's a lot to be concerned about to remember that um, history and politics isn't linear and things uh, can go in cycles. And sometimes viruses create their own antibodies. And it wouldn't surprise me that, uh, that the Trump political virus creates its own antibodies over time. And that um, people, having seen what Trump is doing to our political and civic culture, and just the sheer exhaustion of his presidency, will over time look for something different. I mean, you are, uh, know enough about, uh, about, about history and politics. You're well-versed in it to know that Often, certain political figures give rise to other figures, and, well, and yes. movements give. And and, and 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 he is an example of it. And and frankly, uh, you know, I felt that Obama was well positioned to take advantage exactly. of the times in which he ran. I do think people search for the re- remedy, not the replica of what they have. Even if when you have a popular president, so. Um, I think that that's true, but as you point out, these are extraordinary times, so we'll see if these historical models hold. I think the promise of democracy is that it's a self-correcting mechanism, and I think it will be, but but there are lots of questions to unfold here, including what the nature of the Republican Party will be moving forward. I I agree with that, and I do think that in the short term, things are going to get worse rather than better. I think we're going to have to buckle our seatbelts because Donald Trump is there. In the end, I feel like Donald Trump has to be repudiated and Trumpism has to be repudiated um, for the country and the Republican Party to uh, to recover. But I also believe that whatever uh, happens when Donald Trump leads, leaves the scene at whatever point that he does, that a lot of these currents and movements and, and dispositions and sentiments that exist on the American right aren't going to disappear. The question is, in part, 
uh, is there a figure or figures who can rise up and channel the discontent and the grievances in a way that's constructive and humane uh, and productive? Right now, that's not happening. And, and you've got these, these, these feelings, these deep grievances that a lot of people on the American right feel. Uh, and with that in place, you've got a president who is, let's, let's say that, uh, that uh, you know, that's, that's the kindling, and then he takes the blowtorch. I think uh, just on the way out the door here, I'll say something that will be provocative and will un, uh, undoubtedly uh, uh, engender some response. But I think that uh, one of the things that is inflaming the base is a sense that history is moving in a way that they're uncomfortable with. History is going to continue to move. And uh, so I don't know that the base is going to become more quiescent, but it may become less relevant. I think that's a fair point. Uh, I think for a lot of people, um, and, you know, if you talk to Trump supporters, one has to... One of the things I do believe that we have to do is is to learn to listen well to people who have differences. And in my case, that means listening to Trump supporters uh, and to try and hear where they're coming from mm-hmm. and to try and honor people's own experiences and not to not, not to dehumanize them in the, in the process. It's very easy uh, to um, to do. So I do believe that for reasons that are complicated, some that are that are malicious, some that certainly are not. For a lot of Trump supporters, there is a sense that things are going awfully fast and, and the country that they knew is changing. And, and for a lot of them culturally, some of it is, is ethnicity and, and demography. Some of it is economics. Some of it is economics. It's a, it's a complicated mix. And I think the net effect of that is an effort to try and, as, you know, as Bill Buckley said years ago in the National Review, stand athwart history uh, and say stop. But you can't stop history. And there are certain movements that you can't, uh, you can't stop. Um, but, again, I, I, I think what you have to do, and I think what conservatives traditionally have done when conservatism is at its best, is to recognize these, these changes and, and to channel them in, in constructive and humane ways and to become the party and the agents of reform. Um, and uh, so it's, it's not simply saying stop to history, but trying to recognize what's going on, to prudentially see what the dangers are, to try and set up guardrails, uh, and, and to act in ways that, uh, that uh, makes us you know, better than, than we were and, and that, uh, that unifies the country. And right now, we're, we're not there. Yes. It's hard to see our way from here to there. But uh, uh, you're a person of faith. And uh, I, there's also, we share a secular faith in democracy, and we shall see where it leads. Pete Weiner, it's always good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for being here at the Institute of Politics. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for, the, uh, for having me on the show and, uh, and for hosting. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.